Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider what did Harper Lee do all day in the 50-plus years between finishing Mockingbird and dying? (laughs) (laughs) So excited. (laughs) I know you are. I am too, but I know you are especially excited. Um, So... If you've listened to episode zero of our podcast, which is called Welcome to Book Dreams, you know that this question is at the heart of our origin story. In a nutshell, we decided we wanted to do a podcast together. We were trying to figure out what it would be about. And Eve said, (laughs) I know, let's do a podcast, a whole podcast about what Harper Lee did all day. And I was like... (laughs) That does not a podcast make. (laughs) There is not enough material for an entire podcast with that single question. But you said... I said, well, (laughs) don't be so sure. Because I was in the middle of reading a fantastic book called Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee by Casey Sepp. I just happened to be reading it when we were talking. But the truth is, I had wondered for years, you know, she writes this iconic book. And then what does she do, you know, all those years afterwards? And so here, this book comes out, and it answers the question, which... I never thought I'd be able to answer. And I'll just read the description of the book because I think it summarizes it really well. Reverend Willie Maxwell was a rural preacher accused of murdering five of his family members for insurance money in the 1970s. With the help of a savvy lawyer, he escaped justice for years until a relative shot him dead at the funeral of his last victim. Despite hundreds of witnesses, Maxwell's murderer was acquitted thanks to the same attorney who had previously defended the reverend. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, you you can't make this up. It's no wonder that Harper Lee wanted to write a book about this. The description continues. Now Casey Sepp brings this story to life. At the same time, she offers a deeply moving portrait of one of the country's most beloved writers and her struggle with fame, success, and the mystery of artistic creativity. So that is what the book does. It tells her whole life story and also describes how she spent years, years, years working on trying to write this book about the Reverend. So we reached out to Casey to see if she would come tell us the whole story. And she said, yes. (laughs) We are so excited to have her here on Book Dreams. So a little more about Casey Sepp. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker. Furious Hours is her first book, which is incredible. It was an instant New York Times bestseller. She says on her website that she's a proud graduate of the Talbot County Public Schools. She has an AB from Harvard and an MPhil from the University of Oxford, where she studied as a Rhodes Scholar. So we started by asking what Casey found out when she set out to report what Harper Lee did all day after she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Here's what Casey said. 
the first two thirds of my book are about one of the projects that Harper Lee got involved with after To Kill a Mockingbird. And it was about 17 years after To Kill a Mockingbird came out that she tried to write a true crime book. And she had tried throughout the 1960s to kind of get a start on some other novels, including one that was going to make a kind of trilogy out of Scout Finch and the Finch family. But in the 70s, you know, she'd gotten stale with all of that and those novels hadn't gone anywhere. And she settled on this completely radical idea it was a murder story from a small town in Alabama. And I think for folks who don't remember, it's useful to remind them that she had helped Truman Capote write In Cold Blood. She had gone out to Kansas with him to help with the reporting. She had dropped out of law school, but she knew an extraordinary amount about criminal law and about how the courts functioned. So she was a tremendous asset to him in Kansas. And basically sat down in a small town in Alabama and tried to write her own In Cold Blood. I think if you had given me like a thousand years to guess what Harper Lee had tried to write after To Kill a Mockingbird, I would never have come up with something so ambitious and strange. And frankly, it would have, it probably would not have occurred to me to think about the possibility of nonfiction. We all think of her as a novelist, but there she was for almost a year in this town, sitting in on trials, gathering court transcripts, interviewing coroners, meeting with some of the folks from the criminal justice system who had been involved in this case and interviewing friends and family of murder victims, just doing you know all of the kind of gumshoe recording that we think of for great true crime writers today. So the first two thirds of my book is about that case the kind of who, what, when, where, and why. And then the last third is about Harper Lee and how she got interested in it and why it was hard for her to turn all of that reporting into a book that was publishable. I think there's some other just kind of fun stuff in the book in terms of her life and daily habits. And for one thing, yes, she was from Alabama and she maintained a lifelong relationship to her hometown, but she was really a Manhattanite. She lived in New York City for most of her adult life and, you know, lived in this cosmopolitan apartment building on the Upper East Side and went to Mets games, you know, read at the New York Public Library, went about town like any other New Yorker. I think there's a lot of her life that's brought into relief, not just the work, but social life and social habits. I think in some tragic ways, too, a little bit of the daily life that explains her failure to publish again. So obviously, some of the book is about her mental health and about her struggles with addiction. It just sheds a lot of light both on the kind of ambition that she had as a writer, ongoingly so, you know, with a project like this true crime, but also just the hardships of her life. I hope people just emerge with a just fuller sense of her. They see that she lived next door to Hall and Oates and they read about her getting <laughs> on the subway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's just it's fantastic. Yeah. We think of her as like this time capsule. Like she wrote a book about the nineteen thirties that came out in the nineteen sixties, but she lived until, you know, twenty sixteen. Just a lot of decades after Mockingbird that were unaccounted for and make her just more than the kind of recluse that we think of as just, you know, oh, Harper Lee, the one hit wonder. I think part of the reason maybe she feels like a time capsule is because we knew so little about her. You do such a great job of describing how deeply private a person she was. But more broadly, often we know little about women's history because either it's domestic or it's unheralded. And so were there things about Harper Lee's history and maybe her particular life challenges that struck you as especially female? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think that there's no kind of sharper relief for the pathological privacy of Harper Lee than when you set her life against her friend, Truman Capote, someone who never got off the talk show circuit and who never met a microphone he didn't love and want to disclose everything to. And there was Harper Lee, who you know really stopped doing interviews after 1964, was shy even before that, and spent the rest of her life really just hiding from the public eye. I think some of that was gendered. And in particular, I would say that the kind of canon of Southern writing, especially the one that Harper Lee was born into, had really made much out of male writers. And there was not much room for women in that canon. And I think in Mm -hmm. her case, it was a surprising canonization. Other writers attacked the book and said that it was child's literature and that it didn't deserve the accolades it won. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it won a Pulitzer. Including female writers. Yeah, Yeah. Flannery O'Connor, for instance, right. Yeah, these kind of cutting remarks from her contemporaries or people who said, oh, well, it's not a very sophisticated book, which now that Ghost at a Watchman has come out, you can imagine the pain reception that would have gotten from Harper Lee, who had written a much more morally and politically complicated book, but that her publisher had worked with her to make a little more palatable and a little more streamlined. The idea that on the one hand, she would have great sales and win awards, but then be held accountable by other critics for the simplicity that the publisher had encouraged her to pursue. So I think all of that reception has a gendered tinge to it. Harper Lee came of age at a time when, particularly at somewhere like the University of Alabama, where she went, the opportunities that were available to women were mostly because the men were away fighting World War II. She got to be an editor on her college newspaper because there were so few men to fill those roles. And the same was true for her sister, who had a distinguished career in tax law. But again, it was only because there were not enough male lawyers. And so, you know, there's Harper Lee, who's tomboyish. You know, Scout is a autobiographical depiction, you know, Harper Lee, who scandalized people by smoking and wearing blue jeans in Tuscaloosa. Much was made of her use of profanity and her, you know, sailor's mouth. She did not marry. She did not have children. Um, There's a great deal of speculation about her sexuality, which I think at least we could say was just non-conforming in a straightforward way. You know, again, I think all of that is part of her deep resistance to fame or publicity. It was only enhanced by the success of the book because in addition to those kind of Southern standards of femininity that she didn't fulfill, I think there was this other sense of, well, you know, is she polite enough? Is she personable enough? Is she erudite enough? Are her politics liberal enough? You don't want to do publicity if your feeling is you disappoint everyone no matter what you say. And to that dysfunction, you know, on top of it is a drinking problem that again, was not only socially acceptable for men, but that was valorized in male artists. If you look at Billie Holiday or any of these female artists around the same time, was perceived as dysfunctional Mm -hmm. and inappropriate for women. Other than the few exceptions like a Dorothy Parker, there just was not room in the literary world for someone quite like Harper Lee. The truth is I'm speculating a lot more even than I do in the book in this conversation. It's fun to talk about it. But what I hope the book does is kind of give everyone all of the evidence they need to draw their own conclusions. You know, I quote from as many letters of hers as I can, and I present you with these stories about her life where you can kind of figure out the answer to the million dollar question of why didn't she publish another book? I'd like to ask you the question in a different way, because 
reading your descriptions of her lifelong struggle to write, not only after Mockingbird, but before. I mean, she was always struggling to write once she left college. I started to wonder, maybe the question shouldn't be, why did Harper Lee never write a book after Mockingbird? Maybe the question should be, why was she able to write Mockingbird? I think that's a very perceptive question. Harper Lee never married and she had this kind of non-traditional life, but her life is populated by what I believe are very, very beautiful friendships. And even more strikingly, very, very remarkable editorial relationships. Writers are lucky if they find, you know, someone who will read their work, much less, you know, edit it and improve it. And I think the story of Mockingbird is, is really just a beautiful story of a writer and an editor who produced better work together than either could have on their own. Harper Lee, this young writer, other than in the college literary magazine. She'd never even published a short story. She writes this novel, Ghost at a Watchman. Her agent is really excited. He sends it all around town. No one buys it. And finally, there's this editor at Lippincott who says, you know, I don't want to publish this book, but I think there's a, I like these characters. I like this world. And I think there is a book in here I could publish. And it took them two and a half years of revising to make Mockingbird out of that book. Your question is is an important one, which is how did she write Mockingbird? And I think the answer is an editorial infrastructure that's worth studying. It was partly an agent who believed in her work and who found a way to help her support herself as a writer. It's partly an editor who looked at a messy, complicated draft and saw strands of beauty and integrity and a possible underlying structure, you know, pointed her in the direction of, I think this scene is good. I think these characters are good. I think that we can fix the chronology. I think that it could benefit from a more heroic hero. And I think that's a story worth telling. I mean, look, Tay Hohoff is the name of that editor, and she's up there in the annals of editors with Maxwell Perkins, just truly Mm -hmm. a gifted presence who brought out the best in a lot of writers. Some writers like Harper Lee need deadlines and they need instruction. Other writers like Thomas Wolfe with Maxwell Perkins need just to have hundreds of pages of their graphomaniac prose cut. Writers need different things. Harper Lee needed a Tay Hohoff. And I think that story is a really beautiful one because. The temptation, you know, to go back to the beginning of like, oh, you know, a writer gets a bolt of inspiration and they write it down and there's no work and there's no revision and there's no suffering is a really deleterious vision of art to put into the world because it tells a lot of people, if I don't get it right on the first try, I'm not meant to be a writer (laughs) or worse, the best I can do is this version. It's not even worth revising. Harper Lee is an example of a writer who, God bless her, got better with practice, got better with revision and who, you know, took good advice when she got it. And I think to some extent, you know, why couldn't she do it again? Well, her agent and her editor were both older when she met them. They died by the time she was working on this true crime book she was calling The Reverend. Um, You know, it was hard for her to replicate that structure. And I think to some extent, her life really is a demonstration of how poisonous success can be, because what happened was no one said, hey, get back to work revising or how about a deadline? You know, the deference of of the publishing industry to the great Harper Lee, you know, assuming she was a genius who would just do it again without prompting, without coaching, without any kind of help was a bad assumption. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So since your book came out, Mockingbird has gotten a lot of attention. There's the anniversary of its publication and the hugely successful 
Broadway play. And with that attention has come questions about how race is viewed in the story. For example, Mm -hmm. whether Mockingbird is a white savior story and as a result in part, whether the book deserves its iconic status. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think these are really wonderful and possibly overdue conversations. Sometimes those questions come from a place of real fear. Very straightforwardly, the literary canon is a living thing. And over time, things come and go, or they have a kind of importance or emphasis that they don't in another era. And that works bi-directionally. You know, Moby Dick is a book no one read at the time it came out, but it has ascended to greater importance now. And Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was an extraordinarily important book on race in the 19th century, is a little less so now. I think that Mockingbird is a beautiful and important book, but it's not a perfect book. And there's certainly an important question to ask about whether it is the most useful book for young readers to encounter if we are hoping to have a conversation about equality and justice. In 1960, when this book came out, it was radical. I think we'd all, at least for my cosmology, I thank God it's a little less radical. It doesn't mean it's not important. It doesn't mean that it continues to advance the conversation. But I think, thank God, it doesn't strike us as quite so remarkable that someone of one race would advocate for the life and liberty of someone else. You have said that your book is more in conversation with In Cold Blood than it is even with To Kill a Mockingbird. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Although I suppose I'll start by just saying it's hard to know what I was thinking that day. I guess if you asked me today, I might say <laughs> Mockingbird. But um, it's certainly true that both books are very important to mine. So I grew up knowing who Harper Lee was because I so admired that book and identified with Scout and thought my hometown was a lot like Maycomb. But In Cold Blood, I think it's always been important to me as a nonfiction writer. And the new journalism, which is this movement that Capote was a part of, tried to take the techniques of fiction and apply them to nonfiction. And I think that that was an interesting development. I don't think it was it was all benign. I don't think it was all malevolent either. But In Cold Blood is a perfect demonstration of the kind of triumphs of that style and the dangers. In Cold Blood is a beautiful book, but it's a book about which Harper Lee had many ethical concerns. And many of them had to do with the ethics of journalism, you know, how we represent the certainty of our knowledge and how much we share with readers the kind of bias of our structure. So very straightforwardly, you know, nonfiction writers are often at the mercy of which sources will talk. You can bring the most complexity to the people who kind of cooperate the most, because otherwise you're left with outside sourcing or speculation. And Harper Lee, having lived through all that reporting, she was in a great position to evaluate the choices Capote made and the truthfulness that he brought to the story and that he represented to readers. So there's a chapter in my book that is about her feelings about In Cold Blood and her feelings about the new journalism more generally. Talk about like a prescient conversation. I think we are all still having those conversations today. We look at the role of the press in our society, not just when it comes to crime reporting, but when it comes to political journalism. You know, who is telling the story? How much bias do they bring? What do they understand? Who's the anonymous source or who is allowed to be anonymous? Or, you know, how much veracity have they brought to these, you know, speculative claims? Harper Lee was, she thought, oh my gosh, this is all dodgy and terrible and just not the way journalism should go. She believed in 
straight-laced, old-fashioned journalism, just the facts. So I say that I'm indebted in cold blood because I think her scrutiny of that book was very important to me when I thought about mine. And I think that the murder story that's at the heart of my book, that case is a really complicated one. And it's a tricky one to think carefully about, to represent the truth in, and also to represent the kind of mixed motives of a lot of people involved. So I think that's why I, I must have said that that day because I really have thought a lot about In Cold Blood, and it's an aesthetically perfect book. It is just beautifully written and beautifully rendered and psychologically complex. But ethically, it's, it's a very, very tricky book. The first time I read In Cold Blood, I read it uncritically, and I thought, wow, this is the kind of book I would like to write. You can only write that kind of book if you are willing to you know, massage details and represent speculation as fact and you know, just make tricky choices, which frankly, I'm not willing to. Capote called that book a nonfiction novel, which was a term that drove Harper Lee batty, because obviously, you know, it is either nonfiction or a novel. It cannot be both. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Harper Lee did an interview with People Magazine as a favor to Truman Capote. You write about this in your book, and it was one of the very, very few interviews she gave in the years after To Kill a Mockingbird. And you said that she spoke exactly 12 words on the record, seven of which were, we are bound by a common anguish. We meaning Harper Lee and Trim Capote. What do you think she meant by that? Yeah, I mean, the inscrutabilities of Harper Lee. This is why your podcast <laughs> actually could have just been all about Harper Lee, even when she claimed to be, you know, disclosey. What on earth does it mean? So that interview is interesting to me for a lot of reasons. In the book, there's a photograph that a photographer for People Magazine took of Capote and Lee in 1976 together in Manhattan. Here they were old and gray, but the photographer said it was like, you know, a brother and sister, just two children gossiping together and walking around. And they had known each other since they were children. When I hear that shockingly strange and enigmatic phrase, we are bound by a common anguish, I think the straightforward explanation is Harper Lee and Truman Capote had differently troubled but similarly troubled childhoods, and their relationship with their parents was similarly complex. Capote had a very peripatetic childhood, and his father was a largely absent figure, and his mother was a difficult figure, and he was born in New Orleans, but they kind of bounced around New Orleans and Monroeville, the little town where he had cousins who lived next door to Lee, and that's how they met each other. And for Harper Lee's part, her mother suffered with various illnesses and had a very complicated, a loving but complicated relationship to her children. So I think the core of that comment is that the common anguish comes from this complexity that they shared as children. Now, you know, on top of that is intellectual artist geniuses in a small town. I think some of that anguish was always being set apart. Capote said they were apart people, you know, with their little intellectual word games and nobody liked them and they were always a weird, aloof pairing. And I think that anguish speaks to that. Look, straightforwardly, Truman Capote came out at a very young age and was flamboyantly gay for his entire life and came and went from Monroeville even after coming out. And I think that, you know, whether or not Harper Lee was gay, she was, again, certainly nonconformist. And I think that that was a kind of anguish for the both of them. I mean, they were incredibly tortured adults and they both struggled with addiction and they both struggled with fame and the role of their work in culture and their relationship to their 
public reputation. What's beautiful about that phrase, common anguish, is how it could mean so many different things and a different thing any day that you ask them. I made it the epigraph of the book because Lord knows, I mean, look, we are all bound by a common anguish. So you succeeded in writing the story that Harper Lee struggled to write, this story of the reverend, as well as the history of insurance and a few other things that are in the book, so much in the book. How do you feel about the fact that you were able to do what she struggled for decades to do? I think that there's a kind of obvious cheat in my book, which is that Harper Lee is a character. And that is something she would oh. never have done in her own book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Structurally, I had a gift she didn't. And to me, Harper Lee, you know, she was always going to be the writer character. And the complexity of telling this story and of narrating the experience of true crime journalism, I was only ever going to do through her. So I get it. Like, I didn't want to be a character either. And I get why she didn't want to be a character in her own book. But I think that is what made it easy, because some of the ways that you want to be honest with a reader about the limits of knowledge or about the complexities of someone's character I always had the ability to do some of that through her. So rather than me complain about like how hard it is, Alabama actually has some of the worst public records, like sunshine laws in the whole country. They make it very hard for you to get police documents or court documents. They do not have good freedom of information laws. I was never going to complain about that for me, but boy, you know, I could have Harper Lee complain about that kind of stuff all day. Her letters were filled <laughs> with discontent or the unreliability of someone's memory. I was never going to say, oh, it's really hard to interview so-and-so because one day they tell you something and the next day they tell you something else. But I had letters where Harper Lee was disclosing her own feelings and her own frustrations. Working on the story 40 years after it happened made it a little easier. I just think in general with a lot of stories that are about violence and trauma and community misunderstanding and grief, sometimes time just makes it a little easier. And there are people who are willing to talk who would never have before, or people who are willing to be more candid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first chapter of your book begins not with murders or the Maxwell story or Harper Lee, but rather with several really beautifully written pages about the history of a dam at Cherokee Bluffs in Alabama. Why start there? That is a great question. So the very first time I ever went to Alex City, I saw this beautiful, beautiful lake, Lake Martin, and I didn't know it was man-made. And I started to read about it, and I started to read the records of when they dammed the Tallapoosa River and flooded towns to build this lake and about the way that the Alabama Power Company continues to control its rise and fall. And it was so beautiful to me, but it was also so obviously a metaphor for what was going to happen so many years later with these murders, because it was a story about violence and power and about who gets to make decisions for everyone else and about who makes money off those decisions and who's accountable for the ongoing fallout. Here was a thing that had radically changed the whole culture of this region, and it had both been remembered and completely forgotten, meaning there are people who read this book who are from this very area, like they're from Coosa or Tallapoosa County, and they write to me and they say, you know, I never knew the history of Lake Martin. 
And conversely, there are people who write and say, you know, my great grandparents lived in this town that was flooded and their graves are at the bottom of Lake Martin. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the church they used to go to is at the bottom of Lake Martin. And I thought that is what happened with these murders. To the people who lived through them, you know, to the people who lost a mother or a sister, that is at the bottom of the lake. And to everybody else, it's just this surface story that they look at and they're aware of, but they really don't understand the depths of. And so it just felt obvious to me that it had to set up the story. And, you know, even in deeper ways to me, anytime that you have a flood, which they flooded 40,000 acres to make Lake Martin, every flood to me goes back to Genesis and it's an ideology of evil. And I would look out at that lake and just think the deep, deep mysteries, you know, whether it's the common anguish or anything else, the deep, deep mysteries are about who we are and why we are the way we are and if we can change. And when I say it goes back to Genesis, that's what I mean. You know, the, the deep, deep mystery of why there is violence in the world and why even people we love, we treat badly or just why the world changes in ways that are not beneficial. So you might be looking at a lake But in order to understand the lake you're looking at, you need to know the history of hydroelectric power. And you might be reading about an insurance fraud case, but in order to understand how a largely uneducated rural minister got away with tremendous insurance fraud, you need to know a little bit about how the insurance industry evolved. And you might be trying to figure out why Harper Lee didn't finish this true crime book. But in order to understand that, you need to know who she was as a writer and how she became one. And what her life was all about. So in some ways, it's the like, you know, you must be this tall to ride the roller coaster. Because I think probably there are some people who just think, oh, my gosh, this boring lake, like, can we get on with it already? I thought this (laughs) book was about murder. But it just says, you know, this is a book that's going to ask you to be patient, and to think deeply and to take the long view of something. Mm. Well, I just want to say I'm so glad that I was tall enough to ride the roller coaster. It's a great book. Every so often a disgruntled person points out, you know, it's not a moral failing to just like a book that doesn't dilly-dally, but gets to the point. But my God, I just don't know how people did it. It's extraordinary public works projects. Thousands of people came, you know, for a brief period of time, it was like the largest settlement in this part of Alabama was the camps building this dam. And it's still there today. Turbines still turning. So I think it's always worth thinking about the hard work of people who came before. Yeah. Julie, I'm so glad you asked that question. Oh, good. <laughs> no, yeah. I, love, I think sometimes people think there's like nothing I learned I didn't put in the book, but like Alabama's like early history is so fascinating. And Macedon's walked across Alabama to get to Salt Lake. We look at a place like Alabama and it just feels like such a tragedy and there is a ton of tragic history to own up to and think about and to try and move past but it's also just old and beautiful and strange I love that we started with the question what did Harper Lee do all day and ended with the old and beautiful and strange history of Alabama with mastodons and salt licks. Don't I you? Oh God, just, yes. <laughs> Who would have thought? I know. It just goes to show you how wrong I was. Like you can have a whole podcast that starts with one seemingly narrow question as long as, you know, you're creative and open and original enough with your thinking to take the yeah, different roads absolutely. that pop up as you start <laughs> yeah. exploring the way that Casey did. 
What a book. What a model, really. Yeah. yeah. And what an extraordinary person to talk to. I love how this book upended my expectations. As I said, I wondered about Harper Lee for years. And in my total ignorance, I just assumed she was sitting on her front porch in the house she shared with her sister in Alabama. It turns out she was living a cosmopolitan life in New York City, deeply engaged with family and friends, battling alcoholism and struggling mightily to write. I mean, just the idea of struggling to write day after day, year after year, and not being able to crack it, it just blows my mind. But it reminds me that we can never know the whole truth of another human being. And when we try to invent one to fill in those blanks, we're always wrong. Yeah. (laughs) I need that reminder. Right. So we hope that you have all enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at BookDreamsPod and on Instagram at BookDreamsPodcast. You can find Casey on Twitter at CNSEP and on her website at www.caseysep.com. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.